Gene Sachs and Jerry Zachs sat down for an interview in April of 2000. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. I'm extremely pleased and happy to welcome our two guests this evening, two of the... Uh, well, well, please turn off your cell phones and pictures. Um, two of the great directors of comedy that we have with us this evening. Um, they probably don't need any introduction, but I'll do them anyway. Uh, to my left is Gene Sachs, and to my right is Jerry Sachs. So, now you guys got it. <laughs> what? What's funny to you? <laughs> you. <laughs> the fear is very funny. The fear of like not being funny now is very funny. <laughs> Think about this, this supposed serious business, so you don't really have to be funny, but it's about how as directors you create plays that other people will find funny. Um, when you read a script, do you and it, how do you respond to a script to know that it'll be something that will, that will be funny? Do you have to laugh when you read it, or do you um, feel what you bring to it as a director will make it funny, or does it have to be there in the, in the page? You're kidding me, right? <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> well, you know, if you, uh, to try to answer it, uh, if it doesn't make me laugh out loud, I can't imagine it would make anybody else laugh. You know, I, you know, what do you think? Well, I think it depends. I mean, I don't laugh very much anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I get a little snicker. <laughs> I think it's good for a whole hand. I don't know if both, uh, both of these gentlemen were actors before they were directors. What... Uh, for Eugene, what, um, what was the transition for you from an actor to a director? I directed a thing at the Actors Studio, and it was the first comedy thing that they'd ever done there, I think. It was you know, dedicated to very serious, morbid things. <laughs> <laughs> when I was there in the, in the 1850s. <laughs> and uh, they... Uh, I had a thing that we did, and it was very funny. It was a, I won't go into what it was, it was a sketch that I'd seen at Spoleto at the festival. Uh, it had to be written by a man named Igolo Calvino, who was a great novelist. <coughs> and it was an evening of people who had never written anything for the theater, and designers who had never designed for the theater. And uh, this evening of short pieces was made up in it was the French-Italian evening, and there was a, an evening in English that we Americans did. But um, Calvino wrote this sketch about a Neapolitan uh, sketch, and he uh, he happened to come over here to Ford Grant the following year, 
And I said to him, that's a wonderful sketch. He didn't speak a word of English. And I didn't speak a word of Italian. And uh, we finally pieced it together. And a couple of other people helping us translate it. And I did it at the studio. And I must say, it was a riot. It was really fun. And uh, people there who watched it, for one person, one person in particular named Mort Gottlieb, who was a producer and produced uh, a number of things, uh, he he said to me, you know, I'm going to produce it. Uh, he wasn't a producer. He said, uh, someday I'm going to produce a comedy, and you're going to do it. And I said, great. <laughs> That's great. So he showed me a play that he had the next week. Uh, it was just terrible. Just awful. And I started to think, can I, you know, to get a chance to do a show as a director when you haven't directed anything, it's a great, there's a great pressure on you. You say, God, maybe I'll never get this opportunity again. Should I do it? But it's terrible. <laughs> and I thought I just can't I can't do it I'd be afraid to do it I wouldn't know what to do with it and I after much nail biting and worrying I came to him and I said Lord I, I love the fact that you gave me this opportunity it's wonderful but I just I just can't do it I don't like to play because that's alright we'll get another one <laughs> said, I've read this play that I love and I want to play the lead role in it and why don't you direct it? <laughs> and it was just a completely unexpected thing because I had never thought about directing. But I, um, as an actor, I tended to sort of meddle a lot with myself. But this was a play called The Soft Touch by Neil, Neil Cuthbert and um, we did it very informally. I read it and I thought, and it made me laugh out loud. And, you know, you, I began to imagine groupings and blockings and situations and doors slamming and strange characters. And I, and, and, and I thought, well, why not, you know? So we did it in an informal... It was very similar to what you were describing, you know, sort of a informal, unpublicized two performances at EST on 52nd Street, two, a very, you know, dark theater, you know, very, uh, committed to doing, uh, you know, uh, important stuff, I guess, you know, and not necessarily implied to comedy, you know? <laughs> And this thing just made people laugh and laugh. And I remember standing in the back, because it was a new perspective, standing in the back. <laughs> it was a fantastic feeling of, I don't know, power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, satisfaction. It's like, whoa, 
oh, that works. And yeah, if he if he waits for three seconds here, they're going to laugh. They're going to laugh because they're imagining what's it. And so I fell in love with directing because of that experience, but then really didn't pursue it too hard because I didn't really want to take the responsibility for calling myself a director. It's pretty, you know, I'm a director. You know, like, it's easier to sound an actor. Well, it wasn't the time, in any event. But then I, then I uh, did a play for the um, Marathon series at Ensemble Studio again. Uh, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you, like Christopher Durang. And that, again, you know, enjoyed a successful run after it played at Playwrights Horizons and then at the West Side Arts. And um, that was the beginning of the transition. Well, I think it's interesting <coughs> what you said because it, it occurred to me that the same thing happened to me. After reading this double play, and when he gave me and laughing, I thought, I thought that oh, there's no great shakes as a play, but there's a scene in there that really is funny. And I thought, geez, I can do that. I know, I know how to do that. Actor, young actor, being pulled off the streets, wasn't even an actor, and 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 being uh, asked to to uh, take a part in this play was a actually did at the Cherry Lane Theater years ago. It was run by a fellow named Frank Gilmore and his he and his, his daughter. Nobody really knew if it was his daughter or his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knew what was going on there at all. And you didn't want to know really. But uh, he, he uh, would get actors off the street. I mean, he didn't get somebody he needed to fill a part, and he'd get somebody who was literally passing by, and he thought it was the right type. And he asked if he wanted to be an actor. Of course, a lot of young people said, Oh, yeah, oh, fine. <laughs> and the, the scene was this guy coming on the stage for the first time. And uh, uh, his, it, the stage direction was Andrew Laughing. And if you can picture Alan Arkin doing that, he was just a scream. What was it about it that made you think, say to yourself, I can direct that? I know what that's like. Is well, that because you had that experience yourself? I can visualize it. Immediately it appeals to my sense of... Well, sense of what? Terror? Comedy, <laughs> my sense of... It made me laugh. Now, whether I expressed it in, a, in an open laugh or not, it tickled me. And so I thought, like the song in, in the chorus line, oh, I can do that. It just felt right. Yeah, yeah. It's something, and you're thankful for something like that that says to you, hey, I can do that. I, I, I can visualize it. I feel that's really funny. And it, and it usually turns out that way. Is it important that the actors have innate comic timing? In, in these plays, what is comic timing? I, I think so. I think something. I think absolutely. You know, I think something you can't teach. No, no. I mean, you, you, and, and it's it's a way of playing the music that of 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 the of the, of the, of the script that surprises the audience, gives them a chance. I mean, you know, the ability to know when to take a pause, when not to do anything know that you're going to get a huge laugh by not doing anything is something that someone feels. You can help, as a director, I think you can help 
point out to them. I mean, I can remember when I, I was acting in, in, the, in the Fiddler on the Roof with Zero Mostel, and we had a bit of business that we'd never done in front of an audience before. I would enter as Muggle the Taylor, and he would be davening, you know? He'd be doing the prayers, the, the Sabbath prayers, and he'd be, he would just, yeah. you went that way out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the old man dies really hard. <laughs> No, he wouldn't. He'd be walking around, and he'd be talking. And I'd come in. My line was Reptavia, 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 and he said, "Just follow me and keep saying my name. And we'll just, just do that." Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, what was I was going to say. And so we did. And I remember the first time we did this in front of an audience, a huge tent, and two or three thousand people. I followed him around the stage, and the laugh built, and it built, and it built, and it built, and then finally, just at the right moment, whatever that moment was. He whirled on me and he said, What is it? <laughs> and I started to say, and I started to say, and under his breath he went, Don't move. Don't <laughs> 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 move, don't move. See, he was always right. <laughs> but in fact, he was right directorially. You know, if you don't move, the audience has the bliss of trying to imagine what is going on in both our heads, which is. Makes you laugh trying to imagine that. He, you know, he had lots of other lessons, but as far as timing, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, it can be, it can be helped, but there's nothing like having someone who just knows it. Can you just tell that? It's something to do with music. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you tell it in an audition? You know, when you're auditioning actors, can, is it really clear enough? Well, I, mean, no, I think you have to have two people really to see that. So seeing, seeing, seeing more. Well, I, I mean, which. There are probably other ways to tell. I mean, if you're doing a monologue, you can also put timing in that. You can stop when you're at the right point and pause for the right length of time. And then, I mean, that is also a way to tell. But it's 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 certainly easier if some, somebody gives you a straight line and you can sit down with a joke after. It. I mean, that's that's like shooting ducks. <laughs> what can you do as you're talking a little bit about uh, you know the, the actor having the innate timing but then what can the director do to help bring that up or help make it even funnier or build the laugh I think one thing you can do is to, is to drum the, the actors into the actor that he must listen because that's really from which it all stems I mean <coughs> You have the audience has to see it go through. He has to hear it and then turn it you, you and it's, let it see what you do with it. See you digest. I mean, I mean, so many things are ruined by the by the by one act and not listening to the other. But that reaction and the audience kind of getting into their head what that person's thinking about when they're reacting that way. I think I think we can be helpful too in. In pointing out to an actor when he's gone from being real and really trying to get something done in the scene to trying to be funny, unconsciously trying to be funny, so that you know, rather than get getting the attention off of himself and onto whoever it is he's trying to affect, you know, he has he's doing something in a self-conscious way, and the best actors will you know lapse into that. And I think one can be very helpful in pointing that out, you know, and then ducking. <laughs> now you may you, you said today that I don't know when you said it but you said it several times uh, 
You know, what's the difference between playing comedy and playing other things? The directing comedy and direct, directing comedy directing things. And I always want to say, and I believe, there's no difference. I mean, you've got to have, uh, you've got to believe it. You've got to, it, it's, it's probably doubly hard to act comedy because you must believe it so completely. I can get away with half believing it in, in, in other, you know, in a serious play. It's, it's, you really shouldn't, and you, and you can't, but comedy requires a special concentration and, and, and effort to throw yourself into the situation to really and that's a way to get the audience to watch. But it must be, it's, you know, the old joke, um, what is it, tragedy is, the word of comedy is impossible. I don't know what it is. But anyway, dying is whatever it is, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> dying is easy, comedy is hard, comedy is hard, dying yeah. is better. Yeah. Somebody, no, makes great sense, you know, but believing it, committing to it, I think making it life and death. I think some of the best comedy comes when you really believe that whatever the circumstances are, are life and death to that protagonist. Life and death. And, and, you know, then it, it gives permission for mayhem and chaos and, you know, we'll do anything to get something if we really have to get it. Yeah. And, and, and including doing some what otherwise would be very silly things, right. unacceptable. But if it's life and death, you know, anything goes. What about if it's a musical comedy where you're not really expected to believe because people are... You're, you're suspending disbelief because people are breaking the song. I don't believe. No, I think it's the same thing. Don't you? Yeah, we accept the convention. I mean, I think we expect people to break into song, and when they do, if it's if it's a good song and it's and the person believes it, the sound they're making is, is beautiful or, you know, uh, pleasurable and accurate, you know, uh, um, <laughs> we continue to believe that we're in the play. You know, it's just the song that can be is like a scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it has anything to do with the book. I mean, there are songs that are pulled in from left field. That's uh, when you're um, actually working with an actor on uh, building a laugh. I mean, you, uh, you know, you tell me this story one time, which I'd love for you to tell about working with Nathan on. on Forum, and really kind of discovering once the audience comes in and you hear the response, how do you then develop it further? Yeah, yeah. I've always loved the nuts and bolts of comedy. I've always loved, right from the beginning, one of the, one of the, 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 the most satisfying aspects was sitting down and actually beginning to do, you know, blocking and imagine business and, you know, most of which got thrown out or improved, hopefully, in the course of rehearsal. But it gave me, gave me great satisfaction to try to work things out. And Forum was no different. Um, what David is referring to is uh, the opening number of Forum, Comedy Tonight, which was, uh, you know, legend, it's achieved its legendary status as the number that uh, Jerry Robbins came in and said, this is what we need, and he staged this extraordinary version. And... Um, when we did the revival, one of the major challenges was what to do with the opening. Do we attempt to recreate his work, maybe even ask him to come in and improve on it if possible, or do we do a, a completely different take on it? We decided 
Rob Marshall and I, that it would be more exciting and scary to try a completely different take on it. And I said, and, and I thought that the, the, the essence of this would be what happens if this is a troupe of players who perform comedies. They perform in rep, comedies, tragedies, they perform everything. They're not very good. <laughs> and they perform tragedy much in the same way as they perform comedy. You know, it's that kind of the truth. And on this particular night, when he says, tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight, the first time, and points to the curtain, the curtain goes up, and by mistake, they staged Medea. <laughs> that's what's happened. There's been a huge mistake. Someone got the program wrong. And that's what we did. Uh, he pointed to the curtain, the curtain went up, and there was this tragic music, and maidens wailing, and, uh, and the curtain came right back down. <laughs> and the music continued to vanish. <laughs> now, I had what was great fun was working on getting as many possible laughs out of that. Uh, you know, I mean, just simple as that. How many are one really good one? You know? and, and it was fun dissecting it because we, we found Nathan and I together, sort of like, what do we try here? We found that if he just goes like this and the curtain goes up and they have the crazy maiden screaming and the curtain goes down, First of all, he can't move. Don't move is the first lesson. Because as soon as the curtain comes down, he doesn't move. He gets a huge laugh. The whole bit gets a laugh because everyone's trying to figure out what is he going to do to cover this. Because clearly, this is not what he was expecting. So it was reversal of expectations. Yeah? So, and then the next was to simply, he's got to deal with it now. So what he would do would do a sort of a slow take, slightly embarrassed, and look back to see if that's the second or third laugh, right? We knew there was another one in it before he before he went uh, he got back, back went back into the song, whatever the verse was, uh, and it was to cover his embarrassment at being caught. And it was a very simple thing. We found that if he smiled, it wasn't enough. But if he made audible the laugh, the embarrassed sort of self conscious laugh, he would get the last laugh in the sequence and springboard him right into the verse again. You, you, you're with me, yes? So he would go, ta-da, freeze. There'd be a laugh, 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 laugh. It would build. If we were lucky, we had a good house. <laughs> he would do a slow take, which would build another laugh. Just as he got to here, he would sort of interrupt himself with a laugh. And then when he'd come back, he would just go, <laughs> and sing. <laughs> and sing. I don't know. I take, I take a lot of pleasure in working that out with the performer who can get the picture, you know, that, who has, who can translate all that into believable behavior. The tricky part is making it look as though it were happening for the first time. And that's the hard part. And then, as Frank Lesser said, doing it again. <laughs> and making it look like it's happening. I think it, <clears throat> one of the most important things, two very important things, the script got to be funny. I don't care who you've got, you've got to have material to work with. And the other is casting. You've got to have somebody who is a comedian and playing comedy. And I, th I think certain people are. Certain people can't do things straight. <laughs> you know? I think Walter Matthau is one. He really is so completely funny. 
I went to school with him in the, in the dramatic workshop of the new school that we went to uh, on the GI Bill. And it was filled with people who were now famous, dead. We did that. Erwin Piscata was the um, director. A very famous German director of the Toscana Brecht Theater in East Berlin. And um, he was chased out of Germany. He was Brecht, right from Hollywood. He came here and he started this school with a new school. And he did a, 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 a repertory of plays, a repertoire, and that were just wonderful plays. One of the plays he did that. Uh, Walter and I were in, was uh, Sartre's The Flies, which was the Oedipus legend. Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, idea of the Oedipus legend. And not, we not played... A huh? Not a comedy? No. <laughs> I don't know. Walter and I played two soldiers. And, and it's already funny. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine him in a, in a, in a Greek? <laughs> and we came, we start, we opened the second act. So it was almost like a musical movie. We, we came out, we marched out, it was a big statue of Zeus. And Walter marched down, but we, you know how to walk. <laughs> we, had, we had these big spears. <laughs> <laughs> and we faced front, and uh, we started going. <laughs> There's something wrong with the flies tonight. You <laughs> 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 could never get. I mean, whoever was playing uh, Electra or, or, uh, or Orestes or uh, any of the main characters, they were. What could they do after that? <laughs> 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 we ruined it. <laughs> and then there was a chain, and then there was a suspicion that something was hit behind the statue, and we would go. <laughs> <laughs> Two Jewish soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> Columbia's casting. It is, it is. I totally agree that it's the play. As a director, if you're blessed with funny words and good writing, and you're smart enough or lucky enough to get really funny actors, almost period. I mean, really. And then, like, just put I directed a, a Walter in two pictures in the uh, The Odd Couple in the Packers And he would do things, no, I, nobody had to tell him what to do because he had a wonderful comic sense of something uh, like he was 
gone today. He's still with us. But he, I'll never forget when he had this, 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 the kitchen was described, what was in the refrigerator was described, and they were having a poker game. And he came out and said, uh, I got brown sandwiches and I got green sandwiches. And he put them down and he picked up his cards. When he picked up his cards, he put one, the sandwich he had in his hand <laughs> <laughs> under his arm. <laughs> 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 I didn't give him that. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, what has great? <laughs> the cards were good. <laughs> <laughs> so, putting this. It's natural. Natural, yes. <laughs> what happens when you, you get a laugh and in a place where it's not appropriate? <laughs> 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 I have a great story. <laughs> I was in uh, uh, Middle of the Night by Patty Chavs and Edward G. Robinson played the lead. And uh, I replaced somebody. But anyway, I was playing a son-in-law. His son-in-law. And the scene was his he was telling his sister and his daughter, who was married to me, about the fact that he had he was a widow, and the fact that he decided that he was going to marry Jenna Rollins, who played the young girl. And uh, he would say, uh, he had these lines so I, uh, we were walking on Central Park West, and uh, it was a beautiful night. Snow was beginning to fall. He had a lot of hand dancing with his hands. And, and so I uh, asked him to marry. Well, this, his sister uh, said nothing. And the audience, saw her expression and started to learn. And uh, I had the line that was to break the tension. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, as the character said, congratulations, Jerry. And it was a laugh. And I didn't try to get it. I didn't think it was funny. But uh, the, the audience was probably so nervous through the that uh, they laughed. So I got back to the dressing room. It was the, at the end of the first act. And I, as it comes over to the speaker, Mr. Sykes, go to, down to uh, Mr. Robinson's dressing room. Okay. I go down to his dressing room, and he's sitting in his mirror there. And he's like, oh, yes, 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 come in. I came in. He said, uh, you know, uh, that line. It's a bad line. <laughs> I said, oh, I, I, is it? I didn't know. I, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was thrilled that I got a little laugh. <laughs> but he said, yes, because they started telling me the story of the play, which I had read. <laughs> 
something like that. And it was, it died hard, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to do with me. I'm a kind of funny person. <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, and I, I have trouble doing really straight parts. I mean, look, when I first started at the dramatic workshop, uh, I was doing a scene from Countess Julie by Strindberg. Yeah. And I was playing Jean, the valet. I like the part. But, you know, I the first one out of my mouth, I was getting my you're far too good for a man like me. It's <laughs> <laughs> a tough one, isn't it? I think these are the actors that you hope and pray will walk into your audience. <laughs> truly, people who, at rest, make you laugh, you know, without really doing anything, give you permission to enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah. Can you think of an example of a time when, when you got a laugh that you well, I thought it was appropriate, but again, the star didn't. It was a very similar story. It was again Fiddler on the Roof. You know, yeah, he was very, he was yeah. very uh, self-conscious about uh, his image. He was a movie yeah. star for years. And he thought they were laughing at it, and he thought they were laughing at and it. Was pathetic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And you couldn't tell him. Yeah. Yeah. Just like zero. Well, but was, uh, zero wasn't as threatened. It was a slightly different situation, but it was one upping the star. Yeah, uh, th there was. Um, it was a, again. It was fiddler. These <laughs> are just vivid, you know. Um, and uh, I would come in, and I was. Uh, I proposed that I marry his daughter. It's me. I want to marry your daughter. <clears throat> he had this speech where he said, "Who do you think you are? The matchmaker and the bride who all rolled up with the one." Irate speech, which he would deliver sitting on. Grab me, and sit me down, throw me down, sit on me, or appear to be sitting on me, not really sitting on me. And he would do the speech, and he would walk away. Because we're in the rounds, he walked right across the big circle. And my next line was uh, something, Reptavia, please don't shout at me, please don't shout at me, Reptavia, I know it said something. Blah, blah, blah. For the first two or three weeks, I would just get up, and I would go right into the line. Somewhere, for some reason, in the third week, I got up, and the effect of having been sat on by this enormous man is what I played. So I just <laughs> dealt with having been sat on and trying to cross <laughs> to him. So what happened was that the lap that he got on the speech, you know, on the huge lap, I took and ran with because of the, <laughs> with the reaction to the speech, and I just shamelessly staggered around. <laughs> sort of a cross between a little bit of cheat, a little bit of, you know, this little bit. But it was funny, because the situation, it had been earned by him sitting on me. And then at the very end, before I spoke, I sort of just shook my leg, you know, because I'd seen Keaton do it somewhere. Just like that. And then I spoke. For the, for the next two or three weeks, he didn't even look to see what I was doing. <laughs> and then on a matinee and about the third or fourth week after that he was watching me I saw him watching me and I got the big laugh and the big laugh and I shook my leg and I went into the line intermission like, Jerry would you go to Z's dressing room <laughs> and I'm yeah, sure Z what's up in the mirror he was sitting in the mirror and said Gershon he called me by my Yiddish name Gershon he said um, what you're doing there on the cross he says it's, uh, it's very good very good he said 
But you know when you shake your leg at the end? You don't need it. He said, it's cheap. And believe me, I know. Well, that was a laugh, but, you know, it's just a story. The other, the other ones are when, you know, we, we had one in swing just the other day. It's a fascinating thing to watch what happens when there's an accident, an embarrassing accident. One fellow, fantastic performer, is doing this number, and he's in a gray suit, and he's got a chartreuse shirt underneath, and it's a very animated dance number, and his fly is open. <laughs> it is open. So what you're seeing is bright green. There's no sun, you know? And it was funny because the audience could feel them start to sort of titter, but they wouldn't really allow themselves to laugh because they knew that he didn't know what was going on, and they were worried for him. But but, but pretty soon it had this kind of contagious effect, and now it's growing, and people are laughing, and he still doesn't know what's going on. He just thought the number was going well. (laughs) But it's like watching an accident because you don't know what's going to happen. He found out when he got off. Two weeks later, the exact same thing happened to the exact same actor. I can't believe that someone would forget to, you know, twice in a But he did. This time, he realized what was going on midway during the number. The audience knew that he realized it. Therefore, he could do no wrong. Everything he had a briefcase in his hand. So he would attempt to do some of the number like this. <laughs> Not trying to be funny just trying to keep the audience from seeing the green shirt. And it just got funnier and funnier. You know. Again, an unexpected way. Tell me to keep it in. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's not easy to repeat something. Because I, I was in A Thousand Clowns as the uh, uh, terrible child's comedian and uh, chuckles the gypsy. And I came in in the third act. You have to see that. And, uh, getting, uh, I had a big statue of myself, cardboard statue. I had a scene as a little kid. But, uh, and, I, and I had uh, uh, two bags of potato chips, one on each coat, overcoat pocket. And I came on this and I had, and I had a little scene with a kid saying, here, why don't you take these chips and go and put them in a bowl while I... Uh, I talked to your, to your uh, uncle. Uh, anyway, the kid, that's the way we got the kid off the stage. Otherwise, you know, couldn't get him off. And, and the, the, the scene was private between Jason and myself. So I came in, this is unbelievable, I, I, I start, my flesh crawls when I start telling the story. It was opening night in New York. I came on without the potato chips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I came over and I said, since that it was, that, well, they weren't there. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said the first thing that came to my head, I've been holding out on you. And I ran off to get the potato chips. <laughs> I couldn't find the prop table. Moved in the back theater running around with a pool and, and the kid and Jason were on stage <laughs> in a what to do and it was opening night and as soon as I got the chips I, 
could run back on with them like that. <laughs> and the house came down. <laughs> they, thought it was a, they thought it was part of the show. Uh, uh, so I said, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to try it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll put it in there. And I did the same thing, nothing. Uh, I couldn't. I could never recapture the honest panic. You know, it was a... That's what did it. I got... A play that you directed, what was a favorite comic moment that you can recall? Oh, boy. A moment. A moment, a a comic moment. Remember in Lend Me a Tenor, the hero... uh, Desperate to administer knockout drugs to the tenor. I, I just—it's been a while, and and I remember that he could get the powders into the drink, but that's all he could—that's all he could do. He got the powders into the drink. I'm not remembering this well, but I knew that you know unless he stirred them in, it wasn't going to guarantee that his plot would work, that he would accomplish his objective of administering the knockout potion to this guy and expressing his battery. And so I thought, it, wouldn't it be fair? Wouldn't it be funny if... Because there were no spoons, there were no utensils, it was right out in the open. I thought, well, if he were really desperate, if he were really desperate, he would just stick his finger in the guy's drink and stir it. You know? And just, it was one of those images that you have, you know, in the, sh- in, in the shower. I thought, so if I were doing this, what would I do with my really had to stir the drink. I said, well, you know, I wouldn't give it with life and death. I'd stick my finger in the thing and stir it. And I just remember, I remember watching that for the first time, watching the two actors. And what happened, because of course, once the, our hero, Victor Garber, stirred Ron Holgate's drink with his finger, and they were toasting each other. Ron Holgate, being Italian, assumed that this was a custom. <laughs> so we turned the table and stirred. <laughs> and so something that was very, I just, you know, and it worked. It sort of propelled the scene. It was a huge laugh. That's literally a moment. You know, that I just, it's it's about finding the solution that comes out of the character. De- the desperation. Yeah, yeah, desperation. Yeah. Uh, very uh, urgent moment. <coughs> I'm in my California suite. And I don't know if you remember the scene. Jack Weston played the played the husband. Barbara Barry played the wife. And uh, she came in unexpectedly from Philadelphia into the Beverly Hills Hotel and he had this hooker in bed with him. She had she passed out and she was in the bed. And his wife he wouldn't let his wife go in the bedroom. He couldn't. And finally she said, I've got to lie down. I've got to I'll just lie down. And he, he, she, he had put her on one side of the bed and had sort of tried to make the other side of the bed. He got her in and he put her down on the bed. And she, at that point, had noticed the hooker. <laughs> and then she said, come, come here and lie down next to me. And there was, of course, no room in the bed at all. And he said, no, I think I... I, I think I'd better go to the drugstore and get that get from his office. And so she said, oh, no, just come. Nope. I thought, well, if you were really desperate, if you were really desperate, 
to be desperate, he would just stick his finger in the guy's drink and stir it. You know, it just it was one of those images that you have, you know, in the sh- in, in the shower. That's if I were doing this, what would I do? If I really had to stir the drink. I said, well, you know, I wouldn't do it with life and death. I'd stick my finger in the thing and stir it. And I just remember, I remember watching that for the first time, watching the two actors and what happened. Because of course, once the, our hero Victor Garber stirred. Ron Holgate's drink with his finger, and they were toasting each other. Ron Holgate, being Italian, assumed that this was a custom. <laughs> so he turned the table and stirred. <laughs> and so something that was very, I just, you know, and it worked. It sort of propelled the scene. It was a huge laugh. That's literally a moment. Uh, that I just, it's about know. finding the solution that comes out of the character. De- the desperation. Yeah, yeah, desperation. Sharon, Sharon Whiteside. Whiteside. 
I'm so excited. Christine Morancy is going to do Lorraine Sheldon, yeah. you know, the actress. And no, she be wonderful. Wonderful actress. Well, it's just it's the company starting to come together. Yeah. You know, and it's a thing. Good play, good actors. George, is, I'm reading about Kaplan, George Kaplan. I'm trying to just do a little homework. And, you know, one of the ones asked him whether a young director was a good director or not. And he said very simply, He's a good director when he's directing a good play. He's a bad director when he's directing a bad play. You know, there's something very wise about that. <laughs> you know, happily, it's a good play, and I think we've got a really good bunch of actors. So I'm eager. It's a beautiful. It's a piece of music. It's just a beautiful. Piece of music. Did you ever read? Did you ever read Act One by Moss Hartman? Oh, yeah. I think it's the best theater biography yeah. I've ever read. It is. Um, his whole thing with George Kaufman is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. His description of the first read-through of Once in a Lifetime mm. is just classic because it was a classic first read-through or the usual first read-through where all the actors are afraid of pushing mm -hmm. so you can't hear a word they're saying. <laughs> you know, no one wants to overplay. Uh, and he just the way he describes his terror as the first act was bad, it got worse, it got worse, and he would constantly look over to you know, Kaufman and uh, I think it was maybe Jed Harris, I think. Uh, maybe. No, no, it was Sam Harris. Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. Looking over, and they were they seemed perfectly fine. It was just very funny. Uh, very funny account of, you know, terror. Well, I'd like to involve everybody in this discussion. Does anybody uh, have any questions for our guests? I have more questions, but I'd love to, have, uh, love to hear what you have to say. Um, and if you think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know you both uh, both worked with Neil Simon, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of working on a new play with a playwright. Um, do, does the are you involved in any of the, the changes that occur in the writing of the play as it's developing for the first time? Yes. As the director. Sure. And and uh, anything? Um, how was the collaboration with Mr. Simon? For me, he's very good to work with. Very. Good. He's open to suggestions. Certainly, so in a way that makes you know that you can bring this to life and cause it to be as amusing to an audience as it is to you. I, I, I think that unless you have that gut response to some piece of material, you're asking for. You, I think you're asking for trouble. You know? That's good. I think that um, I was going to say. Don't let anybody in the past try to be funny. But that's really a difficult thing because you don't want to take their their uh, 
egos away. I mean, you want them to be, to believe in themselves enough and to have enough, and to trust them enough so that they, whatever they have, can come out. And if, you, if you're too rough on them that way, you're going to stifle them, make them, uh, make them sit and frightened to do anything. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. That's really funny people, but don't let them... No, let them be funny, because they're naturally funny, but there's nothing worse than seeing somebody uh, be trying to, you know... It's, it's terrible when you see somebody trying to tell a, a dialect story and not be able to do the dialect. It's embarrassing. And how you handle that is really critical because it's your responsibility to point out to the person that it's not working, you know. But you've got to find a way to do it that doesn't humiliate them or terrify them. No question, exactly. And that's, you know, that's, and I think that's something that you never stop learning. You know, you never stop yeah. learning, you know. God forbid you get a little impatient with someone at the wrong moment, and then you can set them back. And it's just, it's awful. It's awful because you don't feel like you know you've done it, and that you can't undo it except by being aware of it the next time. You know, it's very fragile. I think you don't realize the amount of power you wield by the director. It's very, uh, very important that you do realize it. Actively. I saw up there the other night that was a comedian piece, and there was a lot of physical comedy in it, but nobody was laughing. Ah. How do you... That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the actor was working so hard. The actor was working so hard. And yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um, how do you deal with physical comedy? I mean, is it, is it it's got to come out of the situation, you know, and then, the, and then hopefully the person has the skill to pull it off so that it has the desired effect. I mean, it's, you know, if, if, you, if you can see the scenes, if you can see the work being done... As an audience, you're not going to laugh. You, something's being tipped off, you know. And I think it's like I imagine it's like choreographing dance. You know, I, I it's no no different. Physical comedy is choreographed. And it's got to be specific, and it's, it has to have a reason. Every movement has to have a reason, you know. Uh, I think, and, uh, and then you have to have someone who's skillful enough to make it even better than you imagined it. Is that something you work out very specifically? Yeah, yeah, choreograph. Sure, I can remember the end of. Uh, Oh dear, you know, in any number of plays, I think, I, just because it gives me great pleasure. I remember the end, of, at the end of House of Blue Leaves, there was a whole silent sequence where Artie and Bananas they just dealt with each other physically before he choked her. And I, can, I, can, I just remember working out the steps with the actors, of course, you know, <laughs> trying this, trying that, discarding this. The idea being, ultimately, that the audience be surprised. You talk about working with Chris Duran, and I guess my question is, 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 when you think about working with Chris Duran, you think, oh boy, this ought to be fun. But working with Chris, he's very serious. How do you deal with a cast that is excited about coming into a comedy and thinks it's just going to be a riot working on it? But it's not, I mean, you get there and it couldn't be more doubt. Well, well, no, 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 no. It, it can be a lot of fun. I think rehearsals of Chris's plays, as, as I remember them, maybe I'm indulging myself, but I remember them being a lot of fun. I, I think, you know, just working out the choreography and the, and, and, and the business in, in, in those plays was 
helping a lot of fun in and of itself, but getting the actors to really mean what they were saying, just to trust that, because the material was so rich and so funny in and of itself, that getting them to find the humanity in what it was they were doing and make it as specific as possible was challenging. It wasn't doer, I don't think, but it, but it was challenging. But it was a lot of fun. It's like safe crack. It's like cracking a safe, or I imagine what cracking a safe is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you a little bit this way, a little bit this way, and it's like, oh, it's, ah, it. That's it. I guess what I mean is you've got a cast that's anticipating yeah. the fact that, you know, they're going to be in a comedy in this rehearsal period, and just every minute of it is going to be a laugh ride. Nah, well, I mean, how do you... <laughs> yeah. You tell them, right? How first day of rehearsal. First day of rehearsal. You make it real clear. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to work very hard. Here are my rules. Actors don't coach each other, A, and you don't be late. You know, you, don't, you, know, you have enough, each of you has enough to do on your own that you really don't need to comment, or, and it's unacceptable. And you, you know, once you get that out of the way, it clears the air in a certain way, you know, and we get to work on act one, scene one, you know, and then it's really a, a process of, it was, as I recall, about making things specific and believable. I mean, talking about, you know, orchestrating laughs and the interaction between a performer and an audience, I, I can still vividly remember dialogue between the ongoing dialogue, the joyous ongoing dialogue between Elizabeth Franz and myself uh, in terms of how to, you know, how to do this. What are we doing here? What are we trying to do? It's just a married nature. I'm sorry. Yeah. There was, um, there was a whole sequence where, I don't know if you remember the play, but she, she was answering questions from the audience, you know, um, just a whole series of questions. The, you know, do nuns go to the bathroom, you know. Just the way she would look up at the audience would get a laugh, and then just the way she would say, "Yes," would get a laugh. And, and 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 I can remember there was a sequence of those questions, and they were a very you could feel the rhythm. You know, she would read a line, she'd get a laugh. She'd read a line, she'd read a question: Was Jesus gay? Was Jesus effeminate? I think get a laugh. Her reaction would get a laugh. But there was this wonderful, wonderful rhythm where the audience came to feel like they were going to laugh at every. In, you know, in specific intervals. And then she said, are you ever sorry you became a nun? Great bit of playwright. After five or six laughs. Are you ever sorry you became a nun? No, no, don't look up that quickly, Elizabeth. If you look up, if they see your eyes, they'll laugh. Okay, because they're used to laughing. Are you with me? Yes? This is what I love for you. Are you ever sorry you became a nun? Don't look up yet. They're not doing anything. They don't know what to do. They don't know what you're going to say. Look up slowly, just look at each one of them, and simply say, I am never sorry And then go back to your card. Well, it was exquisite. The entire audience became her second grade class. <laughs> and they felt slightly guilty for having asked her <laughs> And they fell in love with her because she became their mom, you know. So discovering that, that's joyous. You know, that's not that's not hard work. It is, a, it is until you sort of find it, and then you go, yes, that's it. Let's do it again. We did it again. It works twice in a row. It must be, you know, real. It must, it must be right, or it must be right as far as we're concerned. Anyway. So I got off on a bit of a tangent. But it, yeah. yeah. My question is, going back to the, um, the bad laugh and the lead actor asking you not to do it, and I remember Jerry said, well, where's the director? And that's sort of what my question is, is. As the director, I would have said to you, that's a great moment, let's keep it. But there's that lead actor who's got his ego. My question is, is have you guys had problems with egos and personalities and 
how do you deal with the lead actor who thinks, you know, or any of that, anything to do with as a director? It's really hard. <laughs> really, I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm sure we each have our own experience, but it's really hard. So, all you can hope to do is be direct. If in fact that was a good laugh, and I thought it was a good laugh as a director, I would try to convince Mr. Robinson that it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't undercutting him or humiliating him. I don't know if I could, and if I couldn't, if he was in fact the star of the show, <coughs> a certain amount of, he would probably find a way to. You know, stifle the laugh somehow. You know, or make sure. But that's that's an infuriating thing uh, to to not have to, to when, when an actor's ego really becomes the agenda and takes over. Um, I had an awful moment in, in forum. Um, it was the only time this has ever happened where I asked an actor not to do something, not do it, and they did it. They did it, and it's, it's all, I mean, I can only remember it's happening once. I, I, maybe it's happened before, and I blocked it out. But it, and, it, and it was because it was a classic bit of Gelbart Shevelov dialogue, where again, in form, where Sudeless was, um, and this was despicable. But I'll tell you, this is how bad it can get. I think uh, a bit of dialogue where Sudeless is trying to bamboo, bamboozle Erroneous, you know, the old guy, and on the other side of Erroneous is Hysterion doing pantomime, cueing him. And Sudeless is the soothsayer. Yes, and he would say, <clears throat> he's trying to guess this guy's life story, <clears throat> and he would say, you have two, and Hysterion would go like this, you have two boys, yes, yes, I have two boys, uh, um, let's say two children, I'm sorry, one, and Hysterion would go like this, a great big boy, yes, 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 and then Hysterion would go like this. And the line was, and a strange little boy. You <laughs> <laughs> have to be really bad to not get a laugh. <laughs> you know, it's classic, great comedy writing. This actor said, you know, this actor said, a great big boy and a boy who likes the theater. And did you feel what just happened in this room? It's visceral. The temperature changed. It became ugly in this room. And that's what was happening in a production that had my name on it at that moment. And, I, and, and you know, I'm sorry, I just, I just will never forget that because it was the grossest kind of abuse you know, to make yourself. Jerry, would you like to tell us who it was? <laughs> in the cocktail hour. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any comments about acting I have too many. <laughs> That's part of our game. That's part of what you deal with. you got to deal with all kinds of personalities. I had to deal with Lucille Ball. <laughs> That's some of name. Yeah, that's the greatest monster who ever... Brilliant talent, but she was in the wrong part. She was also very old at the time. And uh, they wouldn't, Warner Brothers wouldn't do the movie without her. So if I didn't want to do the movie, I just was perhaps I should have done Walked away and said, and then they wouldn't do the movie. But uh, those are, some, you know, you're, you're playing really hardball with some tough customers. Uh, I find it hard when an actor won't trust me. I find that it's, it's, right. like, it's really hard because 
you know, you want to sort of shake them and say, well, I mean, I might even be wrong, but let's try it. Let's just try it, and let's together find out if it's right or wrong. That's, that's difficult. I find that very difficult. <coughs> and often you're afraid to tell, not often, but I, I, I used to be, uh, when I was, I'd just done very little, I was worried about telling the star what to do. And often they are so grateful to the advice that you get. I did, did, when I did Barefoot in the Park, Charles Boyer was playing the guy upstairs. Now, Charles Boyer was one of the premier romantic leads in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. He was a great uh, actor, and he was a wonderful man. And here he was, he was playing this character part, who was coming on to Mildred Natwick. And he said, they had a scene where they started to have a love scene. And uh, he was very embarrassed about it. He said, uh, uh, what should I do? And I said, I couldn't believe he was asking <laughs> 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 what to do in a love scene. And, uh, and he said, yes, yes, I, I don't know how to, how to hold her. And I said, uh, <laughs> and I said, Mildred, and Mildred played, tried to play the romantic scene. He said, oh, oh good, good. Yes, I and he was grateful for it. Another one was Bob Preston, who was great guy. We were doing Nobody Loves an Albatross, and it was that time, it was a um, the problem with his, with this part that he was playing and playing was that some nights the audience would adore him, but there was other nights when they hated him. And it had to do with how sure he was of himself in the part. In certain ways, he was uh, if he was overacting, if he was bad in the part, which he was sometimes. The audience turned against him, and he would use his hands too much. And I was sitting there for a line run through on the stage of the Lyceum Theater, an afternoon that we were going to open, a line rehearsal. And the night before he had done this stuff with his hands, I said, hard to tell, how do I tell, how do I tell? Seeming impossible. Finally, I thought, look, I got it. There's a difference between making it and not making it. And I said, Bob, you use your hands. He said, What? I said, You're using your hands too much. He said, Oh, oh, I'll put them in my pockets. And he did. And I thought, it was easy. It's <laughs> <laughs> problem being worried about it. Exactly. <laughs> but you hope and pray that you'll have an actor who goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 In choreographing a moment, and 
And when you find resistance in an actor, do you attribute that to they're having a lack of trust in you or a lack of trust in themselves or their background or, or what? It can be a combination of all of that. You know, very often I think they might they might feel that what I'm asking them to do it might make them look silly perhaps or self self-conscious somehow. Um, if they don't believe that the that, that the that the action is appropriate for the character, I would invite that dialogue, you know. But I don't know. I'm just I'm very grateful for people trying trying stuff and dis and discovering by trying it that it's false or inappropriate. Because sometimes in attempting a specific bit of business, even if that bit of business is not right or somehow false, it may lead to discovery of something better that neither one of us might have imagined that is an accident. Because there's moments you you know hope for in rehearsal. Um, so, you know, I think, and I just, again, I try to make it a place or present it in a way where it would be difficult for the actor to not try it, you know. Then I get upset myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would certainly easier if the actor believes in you. Yeah. And yeah. then trusts you. Then often they'll go to all ends trying to do it. And then you come up with a bad idea, and you acknowledge it, and the two of you laugh at it together and go, man, well, was that wrong? Whoa. But there's, there's trust. You're building trust that way. You know, and, you know, that's when it's good. That's when it's great. Yeah. Years ago, I was an assistant with uh, Coward and Two Keys, which they're about to revive. And we found that some of the comedy, where we got laughs, with an evening audience, but we didn't get laughs for a matinee audience. And we struggled with, what do we do about that? What do you do? Nothing. I don't think that way lies madness. I really believe Don't enough. play anymore in matinee. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the conversation. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it can be disconcerting, but sometimes... The middle of the day, maybe the audience is a bit older, you know, maybe they're taking a little nap. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard to say, but it does happen. Benefits, those are great comments. A million dollars a seat, and they didn't want to come in the first place. Great audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you ever attempt to uh, demonstrate an actor a specific bit of business? Shameless. Or, or you try to suggest to him what you would like him or her to do and let them uh, do it. Uh, I get very. <laughs> no, I think it depends on the actor, of course. If, again, Preston, when I try to tell him something, I would have to go on trying to explain it to me. He said, he said read a line for me. And I would do it. He said, oh, yeah, that's good. Or, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, because I think he trusted me. And it was the shortest way. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, and I think Abbott would do that, too. You can demonstrate your intention if you're a reasonably good actor. Yeah. You know, you can demonstrate your intention, and hopefully the person is talented to understand the intention, and they try to translate that through their own, you know, through their own equipment, you know, and, and not feel as though they're doing something, someone else's something, you know, that it's not organic. They'll either make it organic, or they won't get the point that you were trying to communicate in the yeah. first place, you know. 
So because you were actors, then you have it's easier to build that trust. Yeah, they they know you were actors. I think so. Really you. I think there's no doubt about that that they have a more trust of you than you would. I, it does, I think yes, and I, and I do think it varies from who the actor is. You know, you get a sense of whether the actor will be helped by a line reading, or be humiliated and upset by a line reading, or uh, whether the actor will respond to actually doing a bit of business as you might demonstrate it, or just saying, "What happens if this, this, and this?" and let their imagination fill in. Let them. It really depends on the person. I would never, never read, read a line from I read you work. <laughs> You know, sometimes that's what it comes down to. When you hear him and hear him and hear him, they say, I can do it. And you do it. You know, uh, sometimes they appreciate that. It's best not to do that in front of the entire cast. <laughs> in trying to find moments, do you encourage your actors to improvise during the rehearsal process? I don't. But if something happens spontaneously, you know, I try to I just watch and see what happens, you know. There's nothing, you know it might lead to something. And if I think for myself, if I thought I knew how to use improvisation as a directorial tool better, I suppose, I would probably use it, but I just never have, you know. Do you use it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if either you could talk about a moment where um, in rehearsal you thought you had worked something out perfectly and it was to you in the cast very funny and then you put it in front of an audience and it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I think they're all perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about a line or a piece of business? I guess I'm talking about a piece of business. Sometimes it seems in rehearsal you think you've nailed it and it's funny and the casting is funny and everybody in the rehearsal room is laughing and then you get in front of an audience and it just sits there. Yeah. How do you address it? Yeah. I can remember that happened when we left on the 23rd floor with Nathan Wayne. He had some sort of a tantrum early on in the, uh, in the play that in rehearsal, again, we all love. So the task is, how do you separate the rehearsal laughs from the real laughs and think about the previews? Because the preview audience is real and they're not invested. They don't love everyone in the company. They think that everything that they do is precious. So they're going to tell you the truth. And it became clear that something he was doing in the beginning of the play that we all love, the audience did not love. It was excessive. They didn't know the character well enough. It made him look crazy and not endearing in the way that it had made us in the rehearsal room. And so I think that... That was an example of, you know, we got to get rid of this, we got to change this, we got to tone this down. They can't know that much about this character this early in the play. They don't know how to posit it. You know, you know it's uh, and it's hurting. You know, it's causing them to somehow dismiss you a little bit. And that's the, yeah, those are, it's, it's, it's tough. But that's why preview audiences are so great. You know, they'll tell you an awful lot. Uh, the audience always right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think they are, you know. I think, I think you know, they are. Just, they are. They, you know, the, the fact is the lights go down, 90% of the people want it to be great. Yeah. They, they really want, you know, you know what it's like the first time you saw a show, lights went down, it's like, oh. They want it to be wonderful. And so if they're not, you know, if the audience is not drawn for it, it's not because 
for the most, unless it's a benefit. You know, it represents somehow on some level you dropping the ball. I can remember uh, something not working, Guys and Dolls, you know, uh, Chris Chadwick, bless him, great choreographer. Corey Beth, the seven and a half minute opening number, uh, Bunyan Land, it's called, where you get to meet the denizens of, uh, you know, of, of New York. And, and it went on. And in the rehearsal room, unbelievable. Fantastic. In the theater, yeah. <laughs> because no one in the audience wanted to live with minor characters for seven and a half minutes at the top of the show, you know. And it was one of those you can't, you can't, you don't know what's wrong because it's as good as it was in the rehearsal room, but it's not right, what the, you know. And uh, you don't know what it is. It makes you crazy. And then you realize they're bored, they're bored, they're getting impatient, and the world's greatest musical, which they've been told it is or they think it is themselves, is now bored, you know. So that, I mean, that you just. Pray and find those things and discover those things. And if you, you pray, you're not so wed to anything that you can't. What did you do? We, I cut it completely. I cut it completely. We went straight from, uh, we went straight to few for tin horns. While Chris, I wanted to cut it completely. He said, let me take it into the rehearsal room and work on it. I know exactly what it is. I know what you need. I said, you do that. In the meantime, it's out because it's killing us for now. And that's exactly what we did. We, we, we cut it out and went straight to few for tin horns. It was a very perfunctory introduction. And when we went to the recognizable stuff, and then a week later, he came back in and did a three-minute version of what was seven and a half minutes. It was perfect. It was, but I mean, just perfect. You know, it just lifted the audience up and put them right in the play, right place for the... the energy. So that was a good say. You know? It was another another scene in that in that show. I'm sorry. I'm just, just bringing back memories. It was a scene in that show right in the middle of the action as Nathan is trying to get the crap game going, you know? And... And he's it's life and death. And nicely, nicely, Johnson comes in with a bag of groceries, and Nathan essentially says, Where have you been? You were supposed to be standing guard. And he said, I got hungry. I went out for something to eat. And that was about eight line exchange. Awful. <laughs> Stopped the show dead in its tracks. You know, and, and Walter Bobby, bless his soul, was doing nicely, nicely, Johnson. Wonderful performance, you know. He'd come in and, and, and he'd try to make it work and he'd bring in different groceries hanging out of the bag, sausages, <laughs> bananas. What's funny, you know? It's And then you do what you have to do. You go back to the text, you go back to the Bible, you read the scene and you go, what is this? And you realize, if you're, again, lucky, you realize this scene was written for Stubby K. This is a fat joke scene. This is a scene that is only funny if the guy is really fat. And if he's not, there is no point to this scene at all. It tells us nothing new. It can be lifted right out. And it was the only scene that I lifted right out. And again, Walter, bless his soul, being the great actor that he is, said, ah, no, I can make it work, man. I'll find the right vegetable. I'll find the right, I'll make it work. <laughs> and I said, I promise you, you will thank me in three days, okay? And you'll, you'll mourn, you'll grieve, and then you'll really be happy. I'm going to be happy right away. <laughs> and that's what happened. You know, something wasn't working. It was, wasn't the audience. It was just, you know, the combination. He didn't offer to gain weight. No. <laughs> he probably did. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Two things, Bobby, because you mentioned Walker's another actor turned director, but I'm curious about the director-choreographer or the director-author relationship. You talked about with actors. Can you talk a little bit about what happens when you disagree with... You gave one example, but in general, does that happen a lot? Or? 
<laughs> what happens when you disagree with the author or the choreographer as opposed to with the actors? What happens? You know, it doesn't happen a lot. Who's got the most power? Well, I guess that's really what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, then, or who, or as Jim Lapine said, who wants it more? Mm -hmm. I think he was describing battles that he was in. Who, who, who wants it more? I, I think it's a good, it's a good question. Um, boy. It's, 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 it's tough. Let I mean, me turn it around. Yeah. When do you give it? <laughs> when you've done your best to enact a change that you think needs to go in or be implemented, and if it's a writing change, it's not forthcoming, you've done everything you can. You know, you can't do any more than, uh, other than restage it or, or cut, you know. Uh, but if you need a new material or if you think existing material is hurting the piece, and you can't get permission from the playwright to cut it, that's really hard. And then it boils down to power, you know? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't say to Neil, we gotta get rid of this amount of narration, it's hurting us. This kid stopping the action here to turn out, I think is hurting us, let's try it. Or if I did tell him, which I think I did, he didn't, he didn't agree, so we never tried it, you know? It was frustrating because it would have been nice to see what would how it might have impacted on the whole. But you know, we're talking about his conviction was unshakable that it was critical and important. And at that point, you know, there's nothing else to do except leave. And I really didn't want to do that. You know? So it's hard. Choreographers, it's 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 it's, it's you know, I think for me it's tricky. I, I just uh, me too. You know, it's a very tricky relationship. I find. It's very difficult, and uh, you just got to find your way through it. I think preparation is really key with the choreographer so that the choreographer knows exactly what you expect, you know, how much dance, where the dance is going to come, why it's going to be there, you know, up front, and, and you know, to really be specific about what story you're trying to tell. You know, and so make sure you're on the same page. Mm -hmm. Then it's a matter of whether or not it's realized in the way you'd like it to be, and that's a whole other issue. You know? So really involving them really early in the I process. Think, I think it's important. I think, I think so. Yeah. so okay. Time for one or two more. Yes. Why is it critical? What way? The relationship to choreography. It's, it's about turf. Yeah. Turf. It's, I think it's about... I, I, oh, that's part of it. But, you yeah. Know. Well, two personalities and... They have an idea what the story is and what they want to do. Again, you have an idea what you and, and you're the, you're the boss. You've got to be the boss. If you're not the boss. Go home. That's why I was asking you why I was. But it's, well, here's an example. I, when I did anything goes, uh, the, 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 the choreographer is going to try. They're any you know they're thoroughbred and they want to do this. They're going to try to look for as many opportunities for dance as possible. You know, and you're the one who has to say no. You know, and with that particular show, I knew that if we didn't have a real full-out dance number until the end of the first act, it would be great. You know, if we didn't stop to do a kind of presentational dance number until we really earned it, and the choreographer wanted to do more. You know, and it was a it was an ongoing thing of no, it's going to undercut us. It's going to stop the momentum of the show. It's going to stop the storytelling. It's going to be decorative, and it's not going to serve any real. Function. You know, when it did, it was right, you know, so, uh, but that's, you know, who is right in that situation is an ongoing kind of... There's also a question of, like, whose responsibility is, you know, like, this song doesn't have a lot of dance, but it has some movement, so is that something the choreographer is going to do, or something the director is going to do? 
That's you have to question. find yeah. all the. Well, you have to, you know, so, uh, and, but I, I think, most question, I, the, I think the director has to be over the choreographer and decide whether the choreographer's work is doing the job that the director wants it to do. Absolutely. Uh, if not, then you have two shows. Yeah. You can uh, another question? Uh, yeah. When you rehearse, um, do you allow yourself to enjoy the actors or actors and laugh out loud, or do you sit on it? I laugh. I mean, if something funny is going yeah. on, I get oh, it. Oh, you should enjoy it. You know, otherwise, you know. Right. No, and, but then again, it, that, that way sometimes you, you, you know, you, you fall in love with something that guy or that girl does. It's just so funny and so spontaneous. And you get to be into the theater, and you know what? It's not funny anymore. And that's, that's disconcerting, you know? Mm -hmm. So you just have to figure out what it was that made it funny in the first place, and was it just the fact that you liked that particular performer? You know, or you know, does the audience know what's going on? Because clearly, if they're not laughing, they don't. It's fascinating. So how, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you sometimes, early in rehearsal, sense a really funny moment and decide to hold on to it for a while so that it doesn't get stale? I've never done that. <laughs> no, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's just, let's try this, you know. Or, no, but that's, I, I, I bet there's a value in maybe being able to restrain yourself a little bit sometimes. You know? But I don't, I don't. And what do you do when the show opens? Because you, you can't not do it each night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you mean? Keep an idea in your hip pocket for. For a rainy day, no, 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 not for rainy days. <laughs> Just that if you, if you find something that's really, you think it's really funny, but sometimes you think if we do it, start doing it now, it's going to wear itself out before we get to an audience. So maybe I'll not tell the actor until a little later on and feed it in. You know, you know what I have done is when a bit of business has worked in rehearsals and we've got, sometimes, you know, I'll say, if, it's, if, that's, if that starts to happen, I'll say, let's just leave this out for a week. Let's just not do this. Just leave it, leave it alone. Let's pretend this business was never in there. And then a little later on, revisit it. And sometimes, that may be addressing the very thing you're talking about. But actually delaying sharing it with the actors to see if it's got any value. Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is going by really fast. Um, please uh, stay with us for the reception. You're all invited to join us for that. And um, it's been a great kickoff to our weekend. And I hope you enjoy it. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.